Hagen, Medical Education Podcast listeners. This is Kevin Eva, the editor-in-chief of the journal. I have a great pleasure today of chatting with a friend from Cincinnati Children's Medical Center. Daniel Schumacher is professor of pediatrics there. He was also one of the past interns at medical education. So I had the joy of spending a year working with him and some others in the context of editorial practices. And I've asked him to speak with me today because he has a paper coming out with his co-authors in the September 2022 issue of Medical Education entitled Making Prospective Entrustment Decisions, Knowing Limits, Seeking Help, and Defaulting. Dan, before we get into any of that, I understand congratulations are in order. You just recently promoted to full professor and that must be a fantastic relief and is very, very well deserved. Yes, I'm very excited about it. And all credit goes to my division chief who really had my back for putting me up for a promotion a little bit early. And I'm really excited to talk about this paper today, actually. I'm super excited about this paper in general. Yeah, awesome. Not all credit goes to the chief because you obviously did the work that allowed yourself to be put forward early, but but I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> and I'm excited about the paper too. You, so I feel like I have to start with the first half of the title, making perspective entrustment decisions. The emphasis on perspective, that's not a term that's usually in front of the word entrustment. What is it and why have you created that little conditional? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think it's one of the important pieces about the paper as I see it. So I think that we can think about entrustment decisions, which I think we are typically thinking about in medical education these days. I think that we can think about them in two ways. We can do them in a retrospective format or a prospective format. And I actually think that oftentimes we do them in a retrospective format. That is, we report on how much supervision or how much we trusted someone to do something in the past. It's simply a report of what was done. Whereas prospective entrustment decision really is forward looking. And it asks the question, based off of what we know about someone's past performance and based off of other things that we might take into account, what would we allow them to do in the future? Prospective, forward looking. I think this is really important because although things like entrustable professional activities and entrustment decision making have become really common. A retrospective report is just a report. It's not a decision. You're not actually making an entrustment decision. You're just saying what happened in the past. Whereas these prospective things are actually a decision. It is actually deciding what you'd allow someone to do in the future. And in that regard, it feels like it more readily captures the spirit of the term entrustment. We're thinking about, do I trust this person to do something as opposed to reporting back. How does that distinction play out in your context when your program uses these sorts of ratings? Are they intended to be one or the other? Or what are competence committees typically enabled to look at? Yeah. I mean, I think that the competence committees oftentimes do report what was done in the past, which, you know, it's not a bad thing. But competence committees are also charged with making decisions around when they would allow someone to progress from one year of training to another, and even more importantly, when they would make a decision about their readiness to graduate and potentially go into an unsupervised environment. I think that that's where these prospective decisions that actually are making a decision for the future that is consequential really should be making that decision for the future, as opposed to this is what we saw them do in the past. 
just wanted to let you know. If you're letting someone graduate, it's not really a just wanted to let you know. It really is a we are saying they can graduate and that they are ready to you know move into a phase where they don't have that supervision. You really do have to make that forward-looking decision. And those types of decisions are not and probably cannot be made only based off of what you have seen someone do in the past or what you know about them in the past. It, it probably does require some, I won't call it a leap of faith, but it does require some navigation of uncertainty. You know, you can't possibly know every setting they'll find themselves in the future. And so, you know, you are sort of making a decision that you can't fully know. And so it does include, like I say, I think it does include more than just reporting what they have done in the past. And that's actually where the second part of the title comes in. In this study, we actually talked to competence committee members about what are some of those things that enter into their mind for making these prospective decisions. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next. The second part of the title was Knowing Limits, Seeking Help, and Defaulting. I'll get you to unpack all three of those things. But just before we get to that, did you have any reason to believe that the factors that influence how people make these decisions would be fundamentally different than in retrospective versions of things? What is it that made you think that the cognitive processes, for lack of a better phrase, needed to be studied here in relation to what's already known about retrospective entrustment? I guess I had some preconceived possibilities of what people would say, but really what was driving the question was this idea that typically people are retrospective in their thinking, but we have to be prospective in our decision-making at these promotion decisions, graduation decisions. And so we really just wanted to shine a light on that and sort of shine a light on what goes into those decisions, even if we had some potential ideas of what might go into them, it still was important to shine that light and say, okay, yes, we've picked up on these things we might have thought about, but we've also picked up on other things that we may not have thought about, is really to shine that light in an area that a lot of people are not looking in, thinking about, and shine it even a little bit stronger in saying, okay, now that we've talked to you about making a prospective entrustment decision, what might that look like? So not just point to the importance of doing this, but also how you might go about doing it. And so when you get into those latter issues of how you go about doing it, knowing limits, seeking help and defaulting, what do those imply? Obviously, they were so fundamental, you put them in the title, but what did you yeah. see? Yeah. So this was all US-based participants. And we actually talked to people in both the residency space and the medical school space. And so we talked to what we would call clinical competency committee members. So that's the graduate medical education residency space for us, as well as entrustment committee members, which is what we call the med school committees that might make these decisions. So we talked to people about, first of all, have they made prospective entrustment decisions or have all of their work been retrospective? And then we asked them to narrow down to just any prospective entrustment decision making that they had made. And most of the participants, actually, we talked to people that are pretty seasoned in this area. And so most of them had done some prospective decision making, although a lot of them had done more retrospective. And so sometimes we were talking to them about things they'd actually done. And sometimes we talked to them about things that, you know, if they took a deeper dive into the prospective, what would they sort of value? And some of, some of the big things that came out were Actually, the biggest thing that came out was for the person that they are considering, their ability to know their limits and seek help was if you could quantify in the size, although it's a qualitative study, but the size of that finding was quite big. 
We heard it pretty universally from the participants as a major factor. So you asked about things that sort of make sense or I might be able to predict, you know, I don't know that I came in thinking, oh, you know, I wonder if we'll find knowing limits and seeking help. But when we did hear that from so many people, it was not surprising to me. Because I think that makes a lot of sense, right? If you are making a decision about someone going into the future, right? I mean, I think that we heard from people, right? They have to have a sufficient level of knowledge and skill, but they don't have to know everything, right? So that when they are in a new situation that they've never seen before, that's okay because you know that they are going to know their limits there and they're going to seek help. And so they are still safe to be unsupervised, even though it's new to them. And maybe they're unsure what to do. You still know the patient is going to be safe and you still know that they are going to do the right thing. They're going to get the help that's needed to ensure that safe care is, and more than safe care, that good quality care is provided to the patient. And I will just say here that actually, although this was the big thing of what I would consider a trustworthiness component, we actually heard other trustworthiness components as well. And when I say that, I think actually about a paper that was published in Academic Medicine a while back by Tara Kennedy as the lead author, and I believe it was Laura Lingard as the senior author, that looked at the front line of care, so the point of care. We were looking at the competency committee level, but they looked at sort of the front line of care. How do people at the point of care make decisions around how much they trust or don't trust someone? And they came up with four trustworthiness components. One of them is having the requisite knowledge and skill. One of them is knowing your limits and seeking help. And the other two things are that they would be that they're truthful and that they are dependable and follow through. We actually heard all four of those things. But of those four things, the knowing your limits and seeking help when needed was very magnified. So I actually think, and we talk about this in the discussion of the paper, but I actually think that our paper sort of builds upon that previous work in a couple of ways. I think that one, it shows that those four things that were found on the front line of providing care translate to summative decisions that a competency committee might make. But it also shows that in that summative thing, that one of these four things appears to be very much magnified in comparison to the other three. So I think that we're building upon that work from, I think, over a decade ago now, sort of in those ways. And that social leading to implications and things. And one of the things you'd noted in your results also was that there was a perceived permanence to prospective judgments. And how does that change the way that you are applying entrustment judgments or the way that you're hoping to encourage competence committees to apply these things? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a great point, right? I mean, at the point of care, you know, if you make an error in your judgment, you always can tweak it for the subsequent patients that you may have with that learner, right? Whereas if you decide that you're going to graduate someone, you can't really ungraduate them, right? Mm-hmm. It is a higher stakes decision. Although I will say that our participants did talk about this, but they also talked about how some more consequential decisions that happen within training did not feel as permanent to all of their participants, right? They talked about the idea that, you know, well, I think that this person is probably ready to be in a senior resident role where they're sort of leading a team in the resident role. I'm not entirely sure, but I know I've got the safeguards of residency in place. We can always pull back from that. So they even saw some of these you know, they are more consequential decisions, right? You're putting them in a situation where they're leading a team and have responsibility for other learners. And as a result, have more proximate responsibility than their supervisor for ensuring good care. You know, and participants to talk about being, you know, 
more okay with that. And again, especially more okay with that if they knew they're maybe a little bit behind their peers in terms of knowledge and skill. But, you know, again, getting back to the idea, we know that they seek help and they know their limits. And then there, the balance was more, this actually, I think was also true for people graduating, right? The balance became, you know, there is a tipping point at which it's great that you know your limits and seek help. But if you have a lot of limits and you have to seek help for everything, it, it does sort of fall on the way, well, you know, you don't have the requisite knowledge and skill. You know, you can't ask for help with everything. You know, you've got to build that up. It's great that you have that skill of seeking help, but you've got to build up, you know, that knowledge and skill baseline a little bit higher. And so one piece of advice on what somebody might change in their practice or one piece of advice even for a researcher then instead in terms of what we need to know better before we suggest changes? When we're thinking about using entrustment and entrustable professional activities as an assessment framework, I think that we really focus on having people tell us about supervision levels and things like that, which is totally appropriate. But one of my take-home points is that I really think that we need to also be asking supervisors to not just say how much supervision they provided or they think they would have had to provide for someone, but also make some comments about, you know, either in a rating format or in a narrative format about how well they think that person knows their limits and seeks help. And, you know, and getting into some of the other trustworthiness components, you know, how dependable they are, how thorough they are, how well they follow through. Those feel like, to me, really important data points to be collecting on the front line of assessment to provide to competence committee members who are making these decisions because we heard from them that those are really important things that factor into their decisions. And so I think that we need to collect more of that type of data on the front line to help competence committees make some of these bigger summative and sometimes more consequential decisions. And at least the people I talk to, I don't think it's all that routine to collect that kind of data on the front end. So to me, that is one practical takeaway from the results that we had. Yeah, an important one, especially you know, given an issue that we didn't get into, but defaulting and people just assuming that progress is on track unless they hear differently. So again, speaks to the importance of, of all those data. But I think we're going to leave that issue for people to discover in the paper in the interest of time. And we'll just thank you for your time, Professor Schumacher. Those who want those details can find them in a paper entitled Making Perspective and Trustment Decisions, Knowing Limits, Seeking Help, and Defaulting, September 2020 issue of Medical Education. And Dan, now that you're fully promoted, I guess we'll just find out if you eat bonbons from this point or or if there's more work yet to come. (laughs) Hopefully more work to come. (laughs) Awesome. I look forward to seeing it. Thanks again. Thank you for having me.